0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. My name's John. I am the Tattooed Historian. so happy that all of you are here to listen in on a great interview, a great chat that I had with my friend Carol Adrienne. Now, Carol wrote a book that was released in 2022 entitled Healing a Divided Nation, How the American Civil War Revolutionized Western Medicine. What I liked about this book was the fact that it was really a book about the people revolutionizing medicine instead of getting into the ins and outs of the science behind it. You know, when things get a little too science y, uh, sometimes you lose me. And I appreciate that kind of stuff. And I know others appreciate it, but I like to hear the stories of people and the ideas of uh, gender history, the ideas of uh, race history coming into play within. This whole thing is basically a cultural history of medicine and the American Civil War. And she talks a great deal about doctors and nurses and volunteers and great stuff for the everyday reader to truly embrace to get a better appreciation of what they went through. So Carol's a great person. She's a great interview. I really appreciate having her on, and I hope you enjoy our discussion about Healing a Divided Nation, How the American Civil War Revolutionized Western Medicine. Thank you so much for coming on to my YouTube channel and doing this video about your fantastic book on civil war medicine, healing a divided nation, how the American civil war revolutionized Western medicine. And that's saying a lot. And I really want to dive into this And again. Thank you for coming on.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, John. I'm really stoked.
0: You know, it's, it's a, it's a broad topic. I understand, and a lot of people are going to get a lot out of your work, and uh, there's something for everybody in this work. But I want to start off from the beginning and ask, how did you get into this kind of history or history in general to make such a a book as this?
1: Well, it was purely accidental, (laughs) never having been a history buff prior to this experience my mom was a journalist and columnist and tv personality in philadelphia and she loved the city and one night we were going to dinner and and we were driving around a a certain area and she told me that philadelphia has more civil war statuary than any city in the country and i thought that's weird and i was thinking about it overnight and i knew i thought no battles were fought in philadelphia i knew there were textile mills they made uniforms but I knew it was a railroad hub, but that was it. And I was actually writing a documentary series um, having to do with the science of music. And I was doing research at our main library in Philadelphia, which is huge and wonderful. And they had all kinds of subscription databases. So when I got to the library the next day, I, I Googled Philadelphia Civil War. And up came this, the fragments, really, of this remarkable story. And I, I, I really wasn't happy <laughs> when I saw it. I thought, this is huge. Somebody must have done this, you know, a documentary or something. And I looked, and nobody had. And the, the deeper I looked, the crazier the ripples of that story were. And so I felt, to use an old-fashioned word, that it had been vouchsafed to me. And I was a little annoyed because I was very busy with my music thing. But it was just... Mm-hmm so big, and so deep, and really meaningful, and I thought, for whatever reason, I I, I felt responsible for getting that story out, so I started to work on a documentary series that I'm still working on, but uh, as we entered into COVID, I got, uh, and all the studios were closing down while we were recording voiceovers, um, I got an offer to do a book about it, and I thought, Okay. <laughs> Sometimes there's an opportunity and you got to seize the music the moment, which is pretty much what I did and it was a very deep dive down a very deep rabbit hole and it was even more intense than than collecting the material for the documentary.
0: Hmm. Was it ever a really anxious time when you were trying to write the book, meaning you didn't see yourself writing this book, and now all of a sudden it's put upon you that you have this opportunity. Was it an anxious kind of feeling or uh, something that you embraced and you just powered through it? Or, or what was it like to be writing this book?
1: Well, I, I was so unfamiliar with how things work that I, I was waiting for them to say, go, no, you know, mm-hmm. or, or talk to me about the structure of it. And they were just waiting for the copy. And so I had a limited amount of time and I worked literally seven days a week for over five months and then at least six days a week for the next few months as it went through the copy editing process, which was intense. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was pretty tense. It was like because at first I was I was doing, you know, a lot of math. How many how many pages a day does that mean? Oh, (laughs) Mm -hmm so it was it was pretty tense but it also was i knew it was a remarkable opportunity so i just every day i sat in front of my computer i prayed and started typing so Mm
0: -hmm. yeah did your outlook on this era change while you were doing the research
1: hugely hugely it one thing that really there were so many major things that presented themselves in the course of that. Like this is a completely pivotal time for women, for African-Americans, for people going to medical school, for the country in so many ways. And, and in the end, just as all things do, I mean, it boils down to people, to individuals. And I started to feel responsible for bringing their stories out, there were people who just went through so many hurdles and blasted through so many walls to get where they needed to be. Um, And and so I felt responsible for getting their, their stories correct, getting their names right, you know, really explaining what they did because individually and en masse, they, they changed the future of America.
0: Hmm. What was medicine like at that time, Carol? Uh, right before the war or, or the early days of the war, uh, how unprepared was America for such uh, a trauma, if you will, uh, such as Civil War combat provides?
1: Really, I mean, it was a matter of, of disaster response and recovery at, at a point, but... It was um, it was not just a story about medicine. Mm-hmm. It really was a story about changing societal mores. Wait, I think I veered off your question a little bit.
0: Okay.
1: Um, I'm sorry. Would you just yeah. say that again? I, no,
0: I was I was just wondering, you know how, how unprepared were we as a society medically at that time for okay. civil war combat and trauma and things like that.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, my brain's... No,
0: you're
1: fine. But the medicine of 1860 was almost identical to the medicine of 1760. Things mm. really had not changed in 100 years. So all of a sudden, I mean, the Civil War was more than a million casualties and an extremely unprepared medical corps in the armies. And then, of course, this is a country that's recently split. So there's two different armies, one with a much longer history. It just was, um, it was a, a recipe for disaster. The first really big battle, um, uh, first Bull Run or Man- Manassas, those wounded lay on that field for at least a week, many of them. There was nothing in place. No, the, we had no ambulance service in America trained professional nurses that was not a profession that existed in this country um, men who were really unfit to fight or had various issues they were kind of hauled in to handle what passed as nursing duties it was really primitive the, when it started the union army had fewer than 130 doctors now, by the end of the war, there were more than twelve thousand in the Union and nine thousand in the Confederacy, but there really, the country was not prepared for a major conflict or for the length of time that it went on. So everything had to change,
0: mm-hmm. and we know in the modern era that. Uh medicine is different for everybody uh you know it's the different neighborhoods different parts different cultures see medicine differently get access to medicine differently we see this in the civil war and your book really touches on these societal changes and uh, how things evolve culturally with uh, this massive nationwide uh, traumatic events i think that's one of the strengths of your book uh, that really stood out to me was the fact that this is a, it's a medical book, but yet it's also a, it's a cultural book. You know, these, the cultural norms are being uh, uh, pushed to different extremes than they were. Gender uh, norms are being pushed to different directions. Uh, when you were writing these things down and you were seeing these stories, maybe even for the first time, Uh, Did you see this uh, revolution in Western medicine, not just from the diagnostic end of it, but also from the person end of it?
1: That was what really called to me, John, that it was, it changed, it shook up everything about gender, about race, about profession. It just completely shattered and reassembled the picture of what that was. And if you were a woman and you, well, just if you were a woman, period, America had entered a phase, was known as the uh, sentimental domestic idea for women, that women were pious and and shy and retreating and that they, they really were several steps behind men socially and didn't even come close professionally. I mean, Most professions for women other than teaching really were frowned upon and considered inappropriate. So women burst into a brand new landscape from which they never retreated after that. And African-Americans, well, here you are on the cusp of millions of people who were held in slavery and free blacks who were held by the, the bonds of, discrimination and segregation. Um, A lot of Southern states had laws, really harsh laws, which forbade teaching, reading and writing to African-Americans, free or enslaved, and really vicious penalties, and penalties for the white masters Mm -hmm. who allowed that kind of education. So the criminalization of education for people of color was at a pretty shocking level. And if you had that, you could not have people of color entering universities, entering medical schools. It just, it was as if everything got tossed into the air and rearranged Mm -hmm. out of necessity. Mm -hmm. So, um, but fortunately it brought these things. I mean, it took things to a place where there was no retreat. You could not at a point with all the African-Americans serving in the armies and being sickened and dying and wounded, you needed to have black doctors as well. And that was something that had never been really considered or allowed in American armies. So Mm -hmm. here's where you get the very first degree doctors who jumped through incredible hoops to get those degrees. most of whom wound up getting their medical educations in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, Toronto was very diverse and, and aggressively, positively diverse. So we get the first African American medical doctor commissioned into the United States Army, Dr. Alexander Thomas Augusta, was born in Virginia, Freeborn but not permitted to learn to read or write because of those l- literacy laws. And he, um, he really went a hard road. It was as an adult, he finally, he found his way to Baltimore, Maryland and kind of got some underground tutors, learned very quickly he was a brilliant guy, but he was refused admission to the University of Pennsylvania owing to his color. So he and his wife, they, he moved them to Canada to toronto he was accepted with open arms at the university there he attended six years of medical school was known as a brilliant student and after graduating and being in private practice he was named as head of toronto city hospital so you i mean that's pretty high up there and when the war started and he was like uh, about 40 and he wrote to President Lincoln and said, I feel an obligation for people of color being called into the armies and being a doctor. I would like to serve them. And he, it took months. Uh, they went back and forth. They said yes, and they said no. And it was really a huge, iffy decision. But finally, Lincoln made that happen. And Dr. Augusta was the first African-American doctor to be commissioned as a major in the United States Army. And there were 12 other degreed African-American doctors who served and an unknown number of healers without degrees who also contributed their extremely valuable services to the soldiers. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm sure that was a huge uh, triumph for the idea of freedom and equality and education as well. So it's actually touching not only on medical history, but the idea that the schoolhouse is a way to to either grasp uh, new power or new freedom in some way uh, and that story just underscores that and and having to go to canada in his instance to get that education really underscores that there's a deeper problem north and south with equality and education uh, during the mid-19th century uh, does it not <laughs>
1: There, there's a line in, in a book, it's actually the only book written by a woman who worked uh, from inside of an army unit during the Civil War, Susie King Taylor, born into slavery in Georgia, um, learned surreptitiously how to read and write, another brilliant student, and she and her uncle escaped to um, an island, St. Simons Island, off the coast of Georgia that was held by the Union. And a lot of people had congregated there, freed slaves, escaped slaves, poor whites under the aegis of of the army. And when they realized that Susie was completely and fluently literate and gifted, they had her teaching. So during the day, she taught children on the island. And at night, she taught the adults. And she wrote a book about her experiences. And when she talked about the adults, she said, they came to me at night all of them so eager to learn to read, to read above all else. And you realize like the handicap of not being able to read, kind of like, you know, if we're dumped down into a country that uses the Cyrillic alphabet or you know, where you can't read the street signs, where you don't know what anything means, um, you're hugely handicapped by it. So one of the things that the Civil War did was to decriminalize
0: education. Mm. Yeah, and, there were, and she is one of uh, many powerful women who are in your book who have really helped that revolution in, in Western medicine, Western ways of uh, nursing and volunteerism to uh, really come to the forefront. And, and I would love to discuss that uh, for a while because I feel like some of these uh, women don't get enough uh, just credit, uh, as someone who grew up in the late 20th century, you know we, we've heard both of us have heard people say, well, nursing is a woman's job. And I've, I've heard that so much in the, my area of the world. We had a gender norm idea that if you were a nurse, that always that meant woman. Yeah. And, and, and that's how I grew up. And it's, it's wrong, but that's how I grew up. And a lot of other people may think that, uh, that may have grown up the same way. But in the Civil War in the mid nineteenth century, it was the exact opposite. <laughs> you you weren't you nurses weren't women; they were men, and they were and they were trying to nurse other men back to health. Uh, and, you, and you touched briefly on that. But what was that like? Uh, receiving that initial pushback for these uh, women who wanted to serve their their nation, or or wanted to be there for uh, those they loved who were serving. Uh, What was it like for them to try to break through that glass ceiling?
1: The degree and the power with which they came at that was stunning to me, that women declared that it was just as much a woman's war as a man's war. You have to realize, really, any man who was able-bodied enough was conscripted into the armies. It, it, so the men were pretty much gone and businesses still needed to be run and farms still needed to be run. And here were women and children trying to take on tasks they had never taken before. And in, in the North, um, you, they were in bad shape, but in the South, as as they removed the slaves from the plantations too, Those women had never done any of that kind of work. So it was a complete change in in the expectations of them. But they, they really dove in. And women who had never been more than three or four miles from their homes, probably, got on trains and went to the sites of these huge battles. I always tell this story, Shiloh, which was the first really big battle in the south, and there were 1000s of casualties, and a group of uh, Confederate women, middle class women who who really had never been out in public without their husbands or fathers, got on a train and 40 of these women showed up at a hospital in Shiloh, you know, very hastily assembled field hospital to help. And the discrimination against having women in the workplace was so strong, the director of the hospital refused to let them help. He said, no more women or flies will be admitted. So it was believed that women weren't smart enough, that they weren't strong enough, but after a while with the terrible cost of this thing and what it was doing to the bodies and minds and lives of the men, there, there was no stopping the women coming in to help. I mean, they're just when, when we look there, I know there are pictures online where there's a building and there are like several hundred guys lying in the yard, waiting for surgery or something. It, it wasn't a case of you could make an appointment. I mean, you had people who were going to lose their lives if they weren't tended to at by the thousands. So these doctors sometimes operated through the night but it was a big deal for women and fortunately i guess there was florence nightingale in england who grew up with a really extensive education and she was regarded as eccentric and she had she was very gifted and she was terrific at analyzing data and she really felt that call and at that time in europe it well really in europe and in america it was regarded as inappropriate for women to deal with men you know men physically with men who were not part of their families so if your father or your brother or your husband was sick that was okay for you to handle them but strangers like you know clutched my pearls so Mm -hmm. they uh but they It was so needed that they just kind of wore down some of those barriers. There there was no point in saying no to them when help was just required to continue the lives. Mm
0: -hmm. A lot changes in war, and especially the longer the war goes on. We see some major changes and impacts on culture and society, uh, not just in the not just on the battlefront or in the halls of Congress, but on Main Street as well. And this is one of those uh, stories that really underscores that Uh, there were women who also ran uh, some of these volunteer organizations or assisted with some of the major duties in volunteer organizations. I would love for you to uh, underscore some of the organizations you came across and how they helped to either uh, keep camps clean or they helped in the hospitals, uh, the massive hospitals like we saw in Philadelphia, Baltimore, Richmond, other places. Uh, I would love for you to underscore them because I think sometimes they're the unsung heroes of the war. We tend to think more about the men on the line, uh, the women taking up the, the, uh, the banner, if you will, of nursing. And we're not trying to say that they don't matter. We're just saying we hear them about them a lot, thanks to people like Clara Barton and, and, and others. But these organizations kind of flew under our radar for many years. And I would love to have you underscore those, the, the volunteer organizations that you have within your book.
1: Absolutely. And it was, let me just pick up that tail end of, of Florence Nightingale who went to the Crimea during that terrible war. And she was able to put a lot of things into motion, her theories about cleanliness and sanitation and nursing and that really is the beginning of professional skilled nursing care and news of her efforts had made it to america so there were plus some uh, some european nuns who had worked with with uh, florence nightingale came here and joined in so so that her theories and her uh, motion really you know got picked up in this country well women started to get together in one another's houses they would knit socks and mittens and make blankets and uh, strip fabric for bandages and they collected lint which was a scraping process which and the lint was packed into wounds they cooked food they wrote letters for the soldiers and there were, it is estimated, there were more than 20,000 women's groups in the North. And in the South, it was said there, every city, town, village, and hamlet had a woman's group who were volunteering and doing everything they could to save the men, really. Um, so in the North, I guess today we would call them the New York Suits moved in. <laughs> and they said you girls are doing a great job and now we're going to organize it Mm -hmm. so this was kind of an interesting double pronged thing because the men sort of came in and and took over the effort and did organize and administer and and create a very powerful movement but what that also did was once they had created this organization which went to army camps and examined them, taught soldiers how to be more effective and more hygienic in their practices, not to dig latrines next to the cooking area, not to sleep directly near the river, all, all this stuff, um, and they uh, they really changed the the culture of of the army camps. Uh, So the United States Sanitary Commission was the big one that formed in the North, originally from all these women's groups. But once the men had really gotten it into a structured organization, somebody had to run it. And so women moved into leadership positions for the first time in this country, in business, in volunteer action, in organizations. So it, really, it was an interesting thing that the women started it, the men said, okay, we're good, let's make it bigger. Now we need you back in to run it. <laughs> so it brought women into the forefront of, of business and, and medicine really for the first time in this country. And the United States Sanitary Commission was remarkable and they, it set out to do what the government could not, And what the United States government was not able to do was get medical supplies into the battlefields effectively, to get healthy food into the soldiers, to get clean water into them. And these were some of the things that this volunteer organization set out to do and did very successfully. And there were plenty of organizations in the South um, with both white women and black women forming to, you know, performing together to make these huge efforts in, in salvation, as it were. Um, but the, the U.S. Sanitary Commission was the big one. There were a lot of photographs. It got to the point where they would set up offices on different battlefields, and you can see a sign, U.S. Sanitary Commission. There were other ones. The YMCA founded the Christian Commission, and these guys went onto the fields and they strove to address the spiritual issues of the soldiers in these horrible positions where they were seeing their friends die and suffer so that was another like really what was a powerful institution and and these big volunteer groups really provided a lot of the inspiration and the impetus for important global um efforts like the International Committee of the Red Cross and eventually years after the war the American Red Cross but it was it was a brand new and humongous humanitarian effort that had never been seen in the west before
0: hmm. I've often heard it said and I agree with it that we have to look at the structure and the strength of what goes on at the home front to really understand who's winning a war. And uh, we see that with these organizations where uh, if there's not enough supply and patriotic demand, if you will, behind the scenes, if people are getting upset with the war, if they are just not volunteering like they used to, you start to see the front lines give. And it seemed like there was always an edge in the north and, and uh, for the union, as far as these organizations always had the cash flow, they always had the stuff that they needed to make this work. Um, and it was like, well, it's almost, it was never a foregone conclusion that the, that, the, that we would be reunified and we would have a unified nation again. However, the backbone seemed to be there, right? Because it seems like a lot of these organizations were set up in the northern states it
1: did and there was a unique phenomena that came about uh, with through the united states sanitary commission which were the sanitary fairs because as you said i mean they really had to fundraise so they you know somebody had to pay for all this and the government was not paying for it um, so in cities all over in cincinnati and cleveland chicago philadelphia new york on long island they had Sanitary fairs, which were huge expos, and I must say, and run mostly by women. <laughs> mm. uh, so it, they most of them would run for a week to to two or three weeks, and they would. In Philadelphia, it was set up um, on Logan, what's now known as Logan Circle. So it would be uh, there would be auctions, there would be art shows, musical performances. They would have livestock shows. Um, there's, there's a beautiful description from Chicago where people were bringing in things, um, butter and animals from the farms and produce to this central location where it would be sold or auctioned. And these things raised over a million dollars in Civil War dollars mm. at the time. So those sanitary fairs really marked the major fundraising uh, uh, or major fundraising on a huge scale that funded things like the united states sanitary commission
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah and as a son of a single mother I, i'd say I, I don't mind it being all run by women i was raised by a single mother so uh hey. i sometimes prefer it <laughs> it's like that because we guys can lose our cool ones too often uh but uh with with this idea of uh this these movements revolutionizing uh, Western medicine and how we uh, treat men at the front or sometimes directly behind the front. You brought up the YMCA and it's really interesting you bring up the YMCA because uh, when I was studying the first world war and I still do, they were big in the first world war was setting up canteens. And it's almost like they learned that from their time in the civil war and, and showcasing that legacy project moving forward.
1: I didn't realize until I did this research that that the Y was, I mean, there were branches of the YMCA in Europe, in Northern Africa. I mean, it really was all over the place at at Mm -hmm. the time of the Civil War. Uh And uh, Henri Dunant, who really is associated with the, you know, spearheading the movement that led to the Geneva Convention and the protection of wartime wounded and their caretakers, uh, was very involved with with the why uh, uh i was I, I don't know why but i always figured it was like a 20th century thing but it wasn't right it
0: was right there. right we consider it a 20th century thing but it's been a. its legacy is back into the pages of your work you know you, you showcase it it's right there in black and white uh you've you've you put a lot of interesting people into your book and i would love to know was there someone who really stuck out to you was there someone you had a connection with when you researched them or you were like this is a really interesting person i'd love to have dinner with this person i'm sure there are probably a couple but was there one that was like this one takes the cake
1: there's one who well there are several who blow my mind but mm-hmm. i would have to say i'll give you the, the person who jumped into the forefront of my mind. And her name is Anne Bradford Stokes. And she was born on into slavery on a plantation in uh, Tennessee, and around the age of 30, so she was completely illiterate. Around the age of 30, she made a very daring attempt, and at a successful one and escaped. And Quite a few stories I read people who escaped from slavery frequently found their way to a, a body of water and were able to gain admittance to a passing ship and then maybe another ship. Anyway, so Anne uh, went, got onto a ship which led to another ship and she eventually wound up on the USS Red Rover. And the Red Rover was actually a captured Confederate vessel that had been refitted. They got it before it was even a year old <laughs> mm. uh, by the union as a hospital ship, and it was they had asked uh, two nuns to serve on this hospital ship. And again, a very like iffy place for women to be, but it mm. was it was novel, but it was necessary. So Anne made she was taken onto this ship, and four other women who had escaped from slavery served with her. When they got to the ship, they were considered contraband, which meant stolen property. Mm. So it was a very dangerous thing to be at that point in time. So these five black women were considered contraband. Now, shortly after they got on this ship, Lincoln put into effect the Emancipation Proclamation. So they transitioned to... being classified as free women. Well, the jobs that they had, so they worked with the nuns and once they became free women, they could have gotten off the ship at any point and and gone on to whatever, but they opted to stay on and serve as nurses with the nuns. Well, shortly thereafter, the Navy classified them as first-class boys which was a kind of, um, it was a very underdog position for menial type labor, but it was a paid commissioned job of the US Navy. So uh, these five women became first-class boys. So they were not only, they transitioned from slavery to freedom, to legal freedom, to paid workers. So it was an extraordinary thing. Well, in later years, Uh, after the war, and uh, still not able to read or write, got help to petition the Navy for a pension. And her health was pretty iffy at that point. Um, And she got turned down. She was petitioning for her late husband, who had also served in the army uh, as his widow. And she got turned down over and over. Well, finally, in her late 50s, this woman who had been through We don't even know what. um, Set out and learn to read and write. And she wrote her own damn letters to the government. And she was the first woman to secure a petition, a a pension from the United States government for her wartime service. First woman, black or white, to Mm -hmm. request and receive. And um, she always, when I think about like, I mean and some of these the people coming out of slavery were not only fighting, you know, gender issues but racial issues. Mm-hmm. So it was probably five times as hard to get to a higher level. But um but she does and 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 Susie King Taylor who whose teaching elevated so many people out of illiteracy and poverty really. Mm-hmm. So yeah. They're two of my biggies and, right. and Dr. Augusta. I, I love right. Dr. Augusta. <laughs>
0: yeah. Dr. Augusta was my favorite. I would yeah. say, um, I would, I would, I would probably pick them to, to understand, uh, what it was like to have to go to a foreign country to get your education because you weren't allowed to have your education here. I would just want to sit and talk for hours about what that feeling was like, you know, to, to, to do that. Uh, it's, it's uh, something that we take for granted all the time. And, and uh, these kinds of things really uh, helped push us into hopefully a newer and better era with still more work to be done. Uh, when, when people read your book, Carol, uh, what would you like them to take away from this book? Because as we said, it's not strictly a medicine book. This is revolutionizing society, uh, how would you like people to embrace it or get the the thesis of the book in new ways
1: i think if if there is one thing that came home to me it was about the strength and the resilience of the human spirit every one of these stories whether it's Anne bradford stokes whether it was william green morton who just you know pushed the discovery of anesthesia, whether it was, you know, the the guys who wrote the handbooks on how to do surgery, whatever it was, I mean, they were working through horrific conditions or completely unsupported positions. And and the fact that they that they changed, well they certainly changed medicine, they built new hospitals, they developed an ambulance system, they examined the fields and forests for replacement plants that could replace the missing medications that they weren't able to get from Europe. And and that they that they did it with with rather unflagging spirit in, in what I uncovered. I mean nobody just kind of, nobody I ran into just said, enough, I'm going home. You know? Okay. And there were people who couldn't serve throughout. They would come, they would work for a few months, they would go home, take care of things on the farm, come back and, and serve again. So I would have to say that just that, that push and power that, that humans exhibited to address a terrible, tragic, violent situation and come out on the other side of it with organizations like the Geneva Convention, the Red Cross, the new hospitals, the medical schools, the nursing schools that would admit women, Mm -hmm. um, that it it was an amazing change uh, that medicine just zoomed ahead and, and society did as well. And it certainly didn't solve all our societal problems or discrimination or segregation, but boy, it brought them into the light. And it alleviated an awful lot of stuff and changed a lot of laws and let people in America learn how to read and write without fear of retribution.
0: Mm. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. I also have to ask as we wrap up, what is uh, something that you're working on now for your next project or, or something that you're thinking about for your next project? Because I know you have a couple of things on the burner right now. Uh, I would love for you to be able to tell my listeners about those.
1: Sure. Well, I am back. i am been working on a four-part documentary series called Civil War Medicine. It's all drawn from uh, quotations from the people who lived at the time. It's not fictionalized at all. So I've spent years of research and people's writings and letters and publications. So um, 80 different people from the time who tell that story. So I'm back on that. We've uh, we've recorded half of the voiceovers. I'm just getting ready and we're grant funded. So I'm getting ready with a new proposal and hopefully we'll finish raising the funding for that. Uh, and one of the things I really am very uh, excited about with the series is going to be the musical soundtrack. So I've acquired hundreds of copies of original Civil War uh, sheet music that we're going to treat in some unusual and creative ways Mm. hopefully it will you know affect our 21st century selves in new and and powerful emotional ways um Mm. so i'm pretty excited about that and yeah i have like i have a whole stack of stuff that i was going to work on before this story fell in my lap including uh several things about the science of music and our brains and i hope to Get to that at some point in the next year or two, but mainly it's going to be finishing the documentary series. There is a, a five-minute trailer online, where you can get a sense. So it's going to be more than three thousand period graphic images that are just mm. beautiful and moving and sentimental and horrifying.
0: Mm. I'm looking forward to the final product. I I want to see this, and uh, I want to see how you treat the music, since I'm a big music fan. I want to see how this is, is done a little bit differently to get our attention in the 21st uh, century world. Uh, but Carol, Healing a Divided Nation is a fantastic book, and I thank you so much thank for coming you. on <laughs> and uh, and uh, telling us all about it and letting us know uh, the research behind it.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, and uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing feedback from everybody out there, and, and I, I hope you're enjoying. <music> Thank you.